0: Welcome to Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. I'm Thomas Carroll. Now We Listen is curated and produced by members of Early Music America's IDEA Task Force. It is the only early music podcast written and hosted by diverse individuals in the historically informed performance community. One further aim of the podcast is to highlight performances or texts that seek to deconstruct cultural or personal biases within a wide range of communities. In today's episode, Hungry Listening, Indigenous Musics and Early Music, Diné pianist and scholar Renata Yazzie and Baroque violist and ethnomusicologist Brianna McCullough will engage in a dialogue around ways in which we can bring Indigenous perspectives into our interpretation of art music and pedagogy, using Dylan Robinson's book, Hungry Listening, as a starting point. Welcome, Brianna and Renata. We are so happy to have you with us today.
1: Hello, Thomas. Nice to see you.
0: Yeah, nice to see you, too.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Renata. It's nice to meet you.
0: So I guess the easiest way to sort of jump into things, maybe we can start with Renata, just get a brief history of your musical background.
1: Yeah, so I started playing piano when I was very young. My mother is a pianist, and we had a piano in the home. And I showed interest in piano very early on when I was about two or three years old. So she began teaching me piano, and then she enrolled me in Suzuki piano lessons when I was four. And I continued that until I was about 10. And then we moved to the Navajo Reservation where there were no piano teachers. And I did not have piano lessons again until college. But in the meantime, you know, my mother continued to help me practice and would guide me through more pieces and pieces that I wanted to learn. So I started a degree in chemistry in 2011. And halfway through that, I added on a music minor, and I began studying piano with Falco Steinbach at the University of New Mexico. And then when I graduated with my degree in chemistry, I took a hard left turn back into music, and I finished my master's in musicology and piano performance this past May. And uh,
0: Brianna, how about your musical background? I know you're currently studying as an ethnomusicologist, right?
2: Yes. Ayuki Panafiev. Hello, my friends. Uh, My musical background, I started playing viola when I was in fifth grade, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I decided early on that music is really what I wanted to do and to continue to do. I started a performance degree in Moorhead, Minnesota at Concordia College, but then decided to transfer and complete my degree at CU Boulder, where I studied under Erica Eckert, who has been a wonderful support of me throughout my musical career. After that, I spent a year at IU Jacobs School of Music, where I was studying specifically Baroque Viola. But then I decided that it was in my best interest to move to the traditional territories of the Gabrielino tongva people, known today as Los Angeles, California. I'm here now studying under Professor Tara Browner in the Department of Ethnomusicology. My research is mostly on indigenous representation in early art music, but I also focus on my community, which is the Kudruv tribe of Northern California. I've been dabbling in some materials that I've found in various archives pertaining to my tribe and our peoples, but I am also still a very active performer in the sphere of early art music, but most of my work is done in spaces that encourage me as an Indigenous person to share my experiences and perspectives. So far, that's what my musical journey has been. You know, one of the things that I always
0: find most fascinating about doing these interviews is just listening to everybody's diverse backgrounds that all seem to lead to this very active engagement with, Historical performance, early music at this intersection where research and performance kind of mesh together. Earlier, we we just heard the the work Coyotes by Diné composer Connor Chi. Renata, can you tell us more about this piece and what it means to you?
1: Yeah, so Connor Chi is a Navajo or Diné composer from Page, Arizona, and he graduated with both a bachelor's and a master's degree in piano performance. I believe he's the first Navajo to receive a piano performance degree of any kind. Um, he's And he's just a few years older than me. <laughs> so that tells you a, a little bit about our, the music education on the Navajo Nation. But he kind of started out not really thinking of himself as a composer. And he was doing some uh, recordings of his grandfather, who is a traditional singer. And he was trying to notate them. And then very quickly discovered that was not going to work out. Just because there are so many nuances of the voice, that Western notation really cannot encapsulate very well at all. So he took the notations that he had made, and he started turning them into piano pieces. And he came out with his debut album, the the Navajo piano, which featured 12 vocables for piano, and three Navajo preludes, which were kind of based off of stuff he had learned while transcribing his grandfather's songs. So to me, this this music that he's created is very well done. The heart of it and the foundation of it is very much steeped in Navajo philosophy of song. And just, it's the essence of Navajo-ness, but he's playing it in a classical style on a Western instrument. I just think it's very unique and it's very well done in a way that we haven't seen piano pieces composed before by Indigenous composers. So I, I really think that is something special. And as for the title, Coyotes, Coyotes or Coyote is a character that is, he he's kind of sneaky. He's a bit of a trickster. Maybe he he can sometimes be a bad omen, but also he can be kind of a pitiful creature. So in the piece, you kind of, you hear that little opening uh, motif with the trills and (laughs) it's kind of sneaky. The the piece then turns into this just really like weeping, like gorgeous, sad (laughs) piece. And I think it speaks to Coyote's plight and his character very well.
0: that he attempted to transcribe using Western notation and very quickly realized that any sort of semblance to Western notation really wasn't going to work when writing this music down strikes me as a very obvious thing that one would think of when looking at Indigenous musics or, or the, the cultures of indigenous peoples that trying to westernize and trying to recontextualize things in, in this very narrow western box of how we think about music inevitably falls flat. And I think, Brianna, this is sort of the perfect way to lead into talking about Dylan Robinson and Hungry Listening, resonant theory for indigenous sound studies. Solo musicologist Dylan Robinson engages here in a critique of the settler colonial ways that have been ingrained in our modern customs of experiencing sound that for us are based on consumption and extraction and collection and ultimately violation. Robinson's text proposes ways in which we can recognize epistemological and ontological violence toward indigenous peoples and their musical customs and calls for a deconstruction of these systems in order to give way to an approach that can ultimately build relationships and foster responsibility and recognize sonic sovereignty and follow due protocols when engaging in decolonial methodologies that can allow for unsettling of our listening practices in our modern ideals of what what we think of when we listen to music. What does it mean in Robinson's terms to to be a guest listener and how can you define and expand on
2: sonic sovereignty guest listening and this whole idea of nation-to-nation relationship really builds on this idea of a non-extractive practices that really prioritize forms and systems of reciprocity And responsibility to not only the individuals that you're engaging with, but um, just the broader world in a sense. So, when I think of nationhood, I not only think of our human relations, but our more than human relations. So, that comes to the water, the animals, and what we're doing and how it impacts uh, our more than human relatives. When it comes to engaging with Indigenous peoples and perspectives in Western art music, a huge Element of this is to recognize and support Indigenous artists and musicians. This means building those relationships with those communities well before any sort of collaboration happens. That way, there's trust. There was recently an open letter created from Indigenous classical musicians that talks a lot about this that we decide to spend time with you and your projects. This is to be recognized as um, not only an opportunity, what it means to support Indigenous peoples and musicians is to invest in these musicians and these peoples, their ideas and try to elevate their voices in a way that is non extractive or built in a, um, in a way that's consuming. So this also brings in the audience. So how is the audience engaging with and interpreting this music and what is their responsibility as an audience. And this challenges really all sorts of different ways in which we engage with uh, music itself, but also recognizing music itself is its own being and ought to be recognized as such and empowered as such. So, with that, part of unsettling some of these practices involves listening and how we can disturb. Elements of white supremacy and white power in order to give space and challenge the colonial agenda so that indigenous peoples and voices can not only be elevated, but empowered through their music making, sharing and artistic autonomy.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the legal definition of a native nation is we are sovereign nations within a sovereign nation. You I mean, even legal scholars have the hardest time defining that. But the important thing is that we are ultimately sovereign nations. And when you come onto our lands and come and engage in our spaces, I think Dylan refers to them as sound territories. And that when you are coming into that space, you are a guest listener. In that you are not privy to all of the cultural knowledge and contexts and meanings and language and historical information that everybody else there has. You you are not privy to that. And in some cases, you will never be privy to that information. So how is it that you can go about entering that sound territory, that listening space, as a guest, knowing that you will not ever fully experience that sonic experience like everybody else there. So sonic sovereignty basically is the idea that Native people set the terms of those sound territories, how to engage, what is appropriate, what are the protocols. And as a guest listener, you should follow all of those rules and protocols that are set for you and abide by those terms and respect the sovereignty of the people whose space you are in. That is, I guess, a short definition of guest listening and sonic sovereignty.
0: <laughs> so that's a perfect way to to sum up what is of course a very dense topic that takes a lot of headspace to sort of wrap your head around when you are when you've grown up in a world that encourages non-discriminatory listening of absorbing music without really thinking about the context, and of course, Robinson talks about this in the book with his his concept of the tin ear, listening and taking music from indigenous peoples without any real knowledge of the context of the piece, or whether it's a piece that's even meant for performance or if it's meant for consumption or if it's meant to be sort of a collaborative. Effort between people. And in Western music, often indigenous musics are just stripped of their own sovereignty and repurposed and thrown together in this this mix, this milieu of of just native music and put out there into, into the public. And I think this is one of the things that we as performers and scholars really need to make an effort to move away from especially as it's become more in vogue in recent years for western composers to start looking at indigenous musics of the Americas as a new source of inspiration much the same way that European composers were looking at the the music of Siberia or of the Caucasus or of Asia and repurposing it to create works of course you know such as Scheherazade.
1: Yeah, and I think what's important to to define is that many indigenous nations in my native tongue in Navajo, Navajo does not have a word for music. We don't have a a conceptualization of music. Our word for for I guess what you could say music is for the purposes of English translation it it translates to song. Because all of our creative sonic expressions have a vocal element to it. So it's it's most appropriately translated as song. So what happens when you try to even bring up the idea of music and translate that into a community that doesn't have a word for music? Because you just that should tell you in and of itself that This is a whole different worldview, a whole different perspective on, on creative sonic expression that there is no Western equivalent to, and to sit in that discomfort and sit in that unknowingness and then, and and be okay with not knowing (laughs) is a really difficult thing to do.
2: Yeah, when we—I also wanted to bring up the idea of just assuming that people can take and or understand songs. By my language teacher, my language teacher most recently taught me that songs have to be gifted to an individual, and if they're not gifted to you, you have no right to share them or to gift them to other people. There are community songs, but even then, those—the original song—you have to have respect to the original song creator and whether or not those sorts of songs should be gifted to others or shared with others. So this idea of protocol um, is a huge part of this and something that we can even take within the classrooms is that nobody has the right to this knowledge and nobody has the right to these songs, even people within their bodies. There are protocols in place to prevent certain things being shared. Renata talked about uh, stories only shared during certain seasons. It's the same in Karuk. Uh, we only tell stories during winter seasons, um, as well when there's snow on the highest mountain. <laughs> is how it's phrased, and this is something that comes, yeah, up with the unsettling of things and just recognizing that Indigenous peoples are extremely complex each. Tribal Nation has their own protocols, their own histories that uh, deserve to be recognized and given space, but in a way that empowers those individual communities and really elevates their original and or ways of sharing their knowledge systems, if they so please. Um, This comes up with Transmission as well, which I'd, I'd love to expand more on, but basically is... The idea that Indigenous peoples have their own systems of knowledge transmission and they ought to be recognized as such and given the space to be able to fully be expanded on. And so that goes back to either traditional or uh, newly developed ways of sharing, uh, whether this is through storytelling or song creation but there are ways to engage with this knowledge that somebody may share in a generous way, but do so in an ethical and in, in a good way, what we call a good way.
0: Great. One of the things that we've been making an effort to do is to use a uh, plural for uh, peoples and musics when referring to Indigenous peoples and musics. Um, the point being that indigenous peoples throughout North America and everywhere in the world are not this cultural monolith, much in the opposite way that many composers in the past have seen indigenous peoples and and their music, smashing them all together to to create this fictional non-West. This is, of course, one of the the issues with defining Western culture's relationship to to the non-West as so much of Western culture and Western music is defined by what it isn't um, and the othering of other cultures. Can can you you speak maybe a little bit to how Robinson suggests that allies and audiences can correct
2: this and and sort of course correct for this? Uh, When it comes to just being a good ally in general, I believe first and foremost, recognizing where you are. So this comes in the form, usually, of land acknowledgements. But what land acknowledgements tend to miss is actually doing the work around building relationship and reciprocity with the tribes that are originally from those lands, the original caretakers of those lands. So, in a lot of ways, when I think of a good ally, I find somebody. This is this is my personal opinion, but somebody who really wants to just elevate Indigenous ways of. Existence and being in the world, and that's a whole nother opportunity and conversation. But I think ways in implementing things like that uh, is just really empowering Indigenous peoples in their own right, not asking them to conform and assimilate to the organizations and systems that have that were originally imposed us on us in the first place. So, really giving the space, the opportunity, the financial means. To Indigenous artists to be able to do what they need in order to start elevating Indigenous kids and young people and uh, restoring those uh, connections to the land, which is what it all comes down to. Not only restoring connections to the land, but also giving space and opportunity for land to be returned and for Indigenous people to become the caretakers again in all of the ways. And that's, that's really where what it comes down to is land back and the empowerment of our peoples who have always and will always um, have a relationship with the land.
0: Yeah, there are some uh, performing arts organizations I have gone to performances of that do print land acknowledgements, but they don't necessarily talk about what they as an organization do beyond just printing something at the top of their program. And I wonder how many of those organizations that actually print land acknowledgements are actively involved in engaging with indigenous peoples uh, outside of the concert hall or outside of the printing press. So as as performers who are performing all over North and South America, how do allies promote and support indigenous worldviews and perspectives in an ethical and a respectful way? Um, I think many performing arts organizations are maybe afraid to engage because they're afraid of being disrespectful um, or they're afraid of of being unethical. And so for a lot of organizations, printing a two-line land acknowledgement is the very safe way of reconciling with the past colonial history in in North and South America. Uh, So for, for those organizations, how can you engage in an ethical way that doesn't feel like tokenism?
1: Yes, I've seen a number of ways that music organizations have established kinship with their local communities in the form of offering um, free ticketing for local tribal communities and making that public, not just you know, a hush hush under the table, you know, if, you, if you're if you Native and you come, you get in free, like to, to make it public so that people are know and are aware. Appointing a paid liaison, not just a volunteer, but a paid liaison between the music organization and the tribal community, someone who is from that community who can help the organization direct their activities and their initiatives and guide that kinship, guide those rules, help them to to navigate that. And free use of performance space. I mean people who are who musicians who want to perform or even record in a in a nice space, providing just that space for them to do that. And then you know access to listservs and social media where they boost the work that local musicians are doing in the community or teachers or you know researchers the work that they are doing, featuring them on, featuring Indigenous music on radio stations, interviewing the composers, and just really boosting and highlighting the presence of Native creatives and and letting them say whatever they want to say. Those are some practical, I guess, practical extensions of kinship that I've seen, in addition to you know providing free music education opportunities, music camps, free instruments, free resources for teachers who work on the reservation or for just kids who would like to learn an instrument on their own. There are so many different ways to get involved and to put your time and effort and money and resources into native communities and help them strengthen their sonic sovereignty. Let them take the control over how they want to implement creative sonic expressions in their communities and what they want to prioritize and how they want to go about it. Because you are all still guests on this land. (laughs) Much of it is unceded territory. And so I think that's a start for developing, you know, good kinship practices and just like i said you know know that you are going to make mistakes but it's how you handle those mistakes at the end of the day that really speaks to the kind of relationship that you have with the tribal community
0: yeah i think these are all all really great things and i certainly hope that organizations listening to this podcast take some of these words to heart and really make a more concerted efforts to to truly reconcile and to truly reach out in kinship to indigenous communities, wherever these concert halls or these organizations may be. And so we've sort of talked about concert halls and organizations and large-scale kinship. Let's talk now about uh, small-scale kinship. What happens when a composer composing in a Western idiom wants to reach out to a member of an indigenous community or wants to Incorporate indigenous musics into a new composition. How does a composer or a performing group wanting to to reach out and engage directly musically uh, do so in a respectful
1: manner? My my biggest suggestion or is always let the composer have the option to say no. I think. People come into a community and they place expectations on people from minoritized communities to the point where, or they offer so much money, or they offer, you know, all of these incentives that the composer or researcher or librettist or whoever just then feels pressured like they have to say yes. And I think it's really important that whoever they're reaching out to work with has the full authority just to say no like I don't want to do this and that they can feel comfortable saying that because I think there's kind of an expectation that if they offer enough good things that you know the person will work with them or if the person is strapped for cash enough that they need it you know they'll go ahead and work with them but it's not always it doesn't always feel good and sometimes you want to say no, but you're worried about repercussions, you're worried about what will happen if you say no. So for me, that's my one thing is that give them the full autonomy just to say no, <laughs> honestly. Go ahead, Brie.
2: <laughs> well, I was going to say something similar, actually, except when it comes to this idea of being wrong. and how it really centers down to this individualism that in so many ways Western practices uphold. And that when you ask somebody, an individual who is from a tribal nation, recognizing the fact that you're not only asking that individual, you're asking the entire community and that it's your responsibility to continue to build that relationship with that community if you decide that you'd like to work with this individual or person, you now have a responsibility to build up that community, give them opportunities. And really like, especially with kiddos, you know, like I get so excited when I see little kids learning how to play instruments and such, but when they don't have the means or ability to invest in that or the financial, there's a financial burden there, doing things as an organization or as an individual reaching out to help the community with their music making or song creation or traditional ways of transmission, storytelling, uh, whatever that might mean. Another thing is that so many projects tend to focus on the plight of Indigenous peoples Rather than finding ways to recognize these histories, but also empowering the communities and the individual experiences that happen within these communities, and really finding ways to empower the beauty, the knowledge, the brilliance of Indigenous peoples, rather than focusing on these devastating histories. And by focusing on this resilience and brilliance that Indigenous peoples have always had, (laughs) you start to see the complexities that uh, Indigenous communities have, and there's opportunity to learn. There's opportunity to not only learn, but to empower these peoples and their stories. When it comes to educating, whether it's the individual or an organization, it's their responsibility to start to understand Indigenous knowledge systems from various angles and what that looks like. I always suggest a really great book that I find extremely helpful for people to read when it comes to kinship is Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And I think a lot of people have actually heard of this text before, but that text really dives into kinship, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with music, but as you get to know and understand the complexities of Indigenous knowledge systems, you realize that things are not broken down into these different practices or ideas, but everything, the whole entire worldview, various worldviews are all encapsulating. Once you start to actually engage with some of these texts, you start to challenge your own worldview, and then that opens up opportunity to start asking questions in ways to be and engage with Indigenous peoples in an ethical or in a good way. And then lastly, I, I think what's really important is to just support Native peoples who've experienced pushback and difficulty within the realm of music and in general, and hold people and institutions that have exhibited any sort of racism or discrimination accountable for their actions, recognize that so many times Native peoples have tried to be involved and been pushed away only to find and see once they've been pushed away, these institutions trying to show that they're diverse or they're inclusive. And just recognizing that those sorts of actions not only have trauma on the individual, but they have trauma on the communities. And that sort of thing is generational. That sort of hurt can be difficult. And and, and it's why there are so few of us who've been able to share our perspectives and voices. So just recognizing that Not only do you have a responsibility to those communities, but you have a responsibility in those institutions to call out any sort of behavior that might diminish or cause harm to Indigenous peoples or any group that might be minoritized.
1: So this sounds like a long term thing. And it is. When you want to work with an Indigenous person and collaborate with them. It's not a one and done that it, it requires a commitment. It requires, I mean, we've been talking this entire time about relationship building, but that requires a lot of time and a lot of energy. And unless you're not willing to invest that, then maybe you should pursue a different kind of collaboration where that is more appropriate to just one and done it. Um, We, we like to see, I think our most successful collaborations and the most successful, uh, even most successful non-Native researchers and the most successful relationships that have been maintained by music organizations, they are well-maintained and they have been successful because they have invested the time and the energy and they continue to come back over decades. I mean, they they maintain those relationships and they invest in them in the long term. And that, that's the key, I think, to successful collaborations by people in the music industry.
0: Yeah, and I think there is something about the modern music industry that prioritizes this sense of one and done in collaboration because they want something to be achieved very quickly and put out into the public. But what I think many people don't necessarily recognize is that that can be extremely violent, penetrative sort of collaboration that forces someone else's worldview onto the the collaborator in a way that opens up all of these different avenues for for long-lasting trauma. And I think this is something that we very much need to move away from. Can you both share with our audience what some of the work that you two are currently doing that embraces these best practices as examples for for how collaborators in the western tradition can start to approach interacting with indigenous communities?
1: Yeah, so I think the most the most salient program that for me that comes to mind is the American Indian Musician Scholarship, which I started Technically, I started in 2018, but we didn't really get going until 2020. And we collaborate with a non-native music organization called the Heartbeat Music Project, who Brianna also um, is a teaching artist with. (laughs) They provide free K-12 music education for students on the Navajo Nation. So I said, well, you give them all this music education, you provide them instruments, you provide them lessons, you instill within them this passion for music, and then what? Where where does it go from there? You just release them into the into the world, and then it's like, okay, what do we do now? So the scholarship provides financial assistance for post-secondary American Indian musicians who are studying to in a in a music program in the United States. And not only do we provide financial um, assistance via scholarships, but we also provide educational opportunities. So. We had three Native violinists this past May who we had hosted a masterclass with violinist Ray Chen. And they performed for him and we fed him. We had Navajo tacos. We had mutton stew. (laughs) It was a very generative and safe space for them to showcase their art on the violin. And, you know, parents cried after that event because they had never their kids had never been such a cozy classical space that was tailored just for them. And that is, and I just, I cried because it was so beautiful to see. But that's just one example of, some of the work that I'm doing in the community to increase the visibility of Native musicians and to give them opportunities and to financially support them and build a support system for them so that they don't have to go through what Brianna and I went through in our respective music departments. So they don't have to experience that. And if they do end up going through, you know, similar tragedies, that they won't have to be alone. And that they have a support system that they can fall back on, so that is what I am currently doing right now.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. That's that's absolutely great, and I'm sure we'll put the link uh, below the the podcast so that uh, listeners can donate and can learn more about the scholarship fund. Uh, Brianna, what about you?
2: Yeah, so I am a I'm a teacher as well. I also, of course as many know I'm co-chair on the idea task force. So a lot of the work that I've been doing recently really is just trying to work with larger organizations in creating space and opportunity for indigenous existence and opportunity to share experiences, really trying to forge a path to allow for more indigenous peoples to engage with and participate in their passion. That is something that has always driven me is hoping that the work that I'm doing in these organizations within the school creates opportunity for young people to pursue their passion. So, I, I teach quite a bit. I have a studio, and a lot of what I've been fascinated with is the use of language in learning. So, what that means is uh, using syllable emphasis within language to teach rhythms and understanding. This also has to do with my background in early music and how. I love the expression within the notes and how young Indigenous peoples can learn expression within the notes by relating it to their own language. So linguistic (laughs) knowledge. In addition, I'm hoping to start to really work with young people within my tribe specifically to see if anybody wants to take lessons just to be with another person. Seeing and having that representation is so important for young Native kids and peoples to be able to pursue their careers and musical interests. And so at some point I would love to collaborate with my tribe if at all possible and create a program similar to like what Renata has been doing and work with kiddos in a way that really upholds and prioritizes Karuka epistemological standpoints and perspectives and just really empowers kiddos in their identity, knowing that they are meant to be here and they're important, they're beautiful, and they deserve to have every opportunity to be the people that they want to be.
0: Great, that, that's, that's also fantastic.
2: I think one of the things that
0: I really appreciate is that the scholarship fund is providing an avenue not only for young musicians, but also students studying at the secondary level where so many university students from indigenous populations just get left by the wayside when it comes to scholarships and music in general. Brianna and Renata, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having us.
0: This was Now We Listen, a podcast celebrating traditionally underrepresented performers, scholars, and research topics in early music and historically informed performance. Please join us in our next episode, Female Representation in Entrepreneurship and Education, where we will have the pleasure to talk with Costa Rican Baroque bassoonist and arts entrepreneur and educator, Catalina Klein, about creating spaces for hopeful resistance in educational projects and supporting female empowerment while referring to essays from the book edited by Wayne Wu, Rethinking Multicultural Education, Teaching for Racial and Cultural Justice.
1: Now We Listen is a project of Early Music America's Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access Task Force. Production Karin Cuellar and Thomas Carroll. Audio design, engineering, and editing, Joanna Joy Neuschatz.